when a woman, you know, becomes a mother, I think, um, I think there has to be a grieving process and a letting go process of the of the maiden, because there is that stepping into uh, a motherhood, right? So you're crossing one threshold, you're leaving one threshold and crossing into another um, when you become a mother. And a lot of times I feel that women were not given the space to grieve, to have whatever emotions that we have around leaving that life behind because it's never going to come back. Um, it's it's never, it's, it's done, that chapter is done. And for me, I felt that what was really important was allowing myself to grieve and to have all the emotions that I had, or even, you know, whatever, the anger also of like, oh my gosh, I, you know, I was so free and what happened? Whatever I was feeling and allowing myself to navigate through that. That was Therese Couture, and you're listening to Real Talk Radio with Nicole Antoinette, episode 107. Welcome to Real Talk Radio with Nicole Antoinette. That's me, the podcast that's filled with refreshingly honest conversations about the wonderful mess of being human. I'm so glad you're joining me today. This episode is part of season 13, which to be honest, feels totally wild. (laughs) Have we really made 13 full seasons? Apparently, yes, yes, we have. And with each new season, I'm more in awe and more grateful than ever for the way that my guests are willing to show up and to be real about their messy, imperfect lives. I'm also super grateful for you, for listening, for taking two minutes to leave an iTunes review. Seriously, this is such a huge help in spreading the word and helping new people find us. And of course, I'm grateful for those of you who support and fund the show on Patreon. This is truly a community-funded podcast now, and in 2018, you can look forward to five new seasons. That's the plan, five full new seasons in 2018, and they will be more honest than ever before. I would also love the chance in 2018 to meet you in person. Um, My hope is to do 10 small, intimate, and fun Real Talk Live events. I did the first two um, in August and September of 2017 in London and in Portland, and I am hopefully heading to Boston, Seattle, Los Angeles, Chicago, D.C., and more, and you can find details and grab a ticket at NicoleAntoinette.com slash events if you are interested in doing this real talk thing in person and becoming friends in real life. That would be so much fun. In the meantime, I have a wonderful guest to introduce you to today, but in case you're new to the show, I wanted to first take a second and just quickly explain what we do here. So at the heart of it, my guests and I are committed really to just one simple, powerful thing, and that's telling the truth about our lives. No one's here to sell you anything. No one's trying to get you to fix yourself or your life. No one has a magic bullet, 10-day, six-step life hack plan for anything at all. I am a recovering self-help addict. That's my sort of like joking, but not so joking (laughs) description of myself. And I'm so over that approach. And I bet that you are too. That's probably why you're here. So that kind of thing is not what the show is about. Here at Real Talk Radio, I sit down with athletes, writers, entrepreneurs, parents, coaches, adventurers, artists, activists, and many others. And we dive deep into meaningful topics like work, love, sex, money, addiction, friendship, race 
racism, body image, mental health, grief, fear, courage, change, and just about everything in between. This is definitely an adult podcast covering adult subjects and, warning, often using adult language, and we never shy away from telling the unfiltered truth in an open and honest way, even when it's uncomfortable. And sometimes it's uncomfortable. (laughs) So with this mission in mind, you won't hear any ads or sponsor promotions. These honest conversations are 100% listener-funded, made possible by awesome regular people like you who give $8 or more per eight-episode season. The show is and will always be free, but if you love it, if these conversations make you laugh, think, or just feel less alone, I hope that you'll go to patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette to make your pledge of $8 or more per eight-episode season. You might have heard me say this before, but I seriously do believe that where we spend our money is a real-time vote for the kind of world that we want to live in. And when you help to fund this show, that's a vote. You're voting for a world of honest, judgment-free conversations. You're voting to hear more stories from a wide-ranging group of people, the vast majority of whom are women. And when you support the show, you're just saying loudly and proudly that women's voices deserve to be heard and that no topic at all should be off-limits due to fear or shame. This is a show by truth tellers for truth tellers. And as a thank you for supporting the show, you'll get access to over 40 hours of bonus content, as well as our monthly book club, my weekly behind the scenes email series where I share my real life in real time. And you'll be the first to know when tickets go on sale for more Real Talk Live events. So one more time, that's patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette. And at the very end of this episode, you'll actually get to meet one of our Patreon community members who joins me for a fun little rapid fire question round. So stick around for that after the main episode. And now let's dive right into today's episode. Today, you'll get to meet Therese Couture. Therese is a spiritual leadership coach and teacher who comes from a lineage of healers, spiritual teachers, intuitives, artists, and activists. She works with soul-driven leaders, entrepreneurs, coaches, and creatives, and she's on a mission to help you liberate your light so you can lead and live as your fully expressed, worthy, whole, wild self. Through her epic and sacred retreats and her signature intensive, The Liberation Sessions, she creates what's been called an epic sacred adventure of the soul. In this episode, she opens up and shares personal stories about being a new mother, including how the arrival of their son impacted her and her husband's relationship. We talk about grief, particularly how she felt and what she experienced after the death of her father, and we also dig into the details of the work that she does as a spiritual leadership coach. She talks about how spirituality and ambition can easily coexist and how to dig into your own desires to identify what your soul wants versus what your ego wants. We cover a lot of different topics, and I can say that for me personally, this conversation was both healing and informative and also a lot of fun. I hope that you enjoy it just as much. So all of that starts in just a moment, and as always, you'll be able to find all the links and resources mentioned in this episode over in the show notes at NicoleAntoinette.com slash podcast. Okay, we are rolling. Therese, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Nicole. Thanks for having me. I am so excited. I have to tell you, your this might be a really weird place to start, your website is so beautiful. And like all the colors and all your photos, like everything just feels like this really nice, warm, inviting place to be. 
<laughs> Thank you so much. It was a long journey. Like you should have seen my first website. It's pretty embarrassing, but I mean, <laughs> that's, that, that's all of us, right? Like our initial iteration <laughs> of something, if it doesn't make you cringe, then. <laughs> <laughs> but that's the thing. You got to just put yourself out there and then, you know, you evolve from there. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, a good life lesson overall. I had such a hard time this morning picking from your photos what to use for the cover art for this episode. <laughs> I wound up just sending the media page, your media page to um, my husband who does the sort of the photo and some of the more visual side of the work. And I was like, okay, you pick one. I can't pick. (laughs) (laughs) That's so cute. Thank you. Um, Tell me one of the most fun things that you have done so far this year. Oh my gosh, fun. What's the most fun thing? I think the fun thing is just living in our house. Um, We actually moved from Los Angeles back to the East Coast and um, our house was like a disaster zone. So I know that sounds kind of like not fun doing that with a baby, but we moved to our house. Um, also, another fun thing that we did, we went to Tulum. I had a retreat there. So going there with a six month baby, my husband who took care of him, um, that was that was actually really fun. And it was like, you know, solidified our family in terms of like if we can get through this, we can get through anything. That's amazing. We're on the East Coast. We are in the New York City area. Specifically, we're in New Jersey. Okay, awesome. Yeah, I'm from New York originally. So, Oh, awesome. <laughs> yeah, good for you guys. I, I think about it off. I mean, now I'm up in Oregon, but I lived in LA on and off for a long time. And uh, every time I go back to New York, it's my favorite city to visit. I don't know if I would want to live there again, but it's, uh, it's the best. It's so different. Yeah, we live outside of the city, so we're like a good 30 minutes away. So we're like right now I'm just looking at nature and it's really nice, but we can get to the city really quickly. Mm-hmm. So that's that's it's like the best of both worlds because yeah. I couldn't go right back in New York myself. Like it's too crazy. My my family lives in New York and I'm like this is overwhelming. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah, I hear you. My brother lives in Jersey. So yes, I very much familiar with uh, with that. Um, so Tulum, Mexico, tell me about that. I've heard it's beautiful. It is really, really, really beautiful. I had the honor of hosting a retreat, leading a retreat there um, earlier this year. And I mean, it's a magical place. I don't even know where to begin. Um, where it was really just an intuitive hit that led me there. And, and I just follow that hit. People are like, well, you've never been there. How do you know? And I was like, well, I just have this feeling I'm supposed to go there and, um, going there for, I, I, I can also speak for the women who were there because they've shared this with me. They have shared that it was the most transformative, deep experience that they've ever had. And it just, it, it was just amazing. It was just amazing. That sounds incredible. Yeah, it's on my list of places to visit. So there you go. Maybe you've convinced me. Um, So I want to talk about, I mean, I know we're going to talk about a bunch of different stuff, but I really want to start by talking about the work that you do. When someone asks you what you do that really isn't familiar with, you know, the space that you work in at all, what do you say? How do you describe it? On the simplest level, what I think I do is I activate leaders through soul work. That's like on the simplest level. If someone's like, what's your title? I, you know, I call myself a spiritual leadership coach. I'm also an artist. Um, But at the simplest level, it's I activate leaders to step into their brilliance, to rise so that they can do their best work. And I do that through 
sold work. Mm-hmm. Okay. So a lot of terms in there that I want to dig into. So when you say leaders, does that encompass leaders of different types? Are you talking specifically about business? Who are the types of folks that um, tend to gravitate towards working with you and that you love to work with? I work with a lot of artists. I work with a lot of people who have started nonprofits, who regardless of what they do, they have a mission, which is to better the world. Um, it's not simply, oh, I'm doing this for profit. If you are doing it for profit, great, good for you. I'm probably not the right person. So they have their, their mission is connected to, I guess, the upliftment of humanity. And, you know, I've worked also with moms. So I, I believe we're all leaders. So that whole, um, notion that, oh, this, you have to be a leader in, in order to be a leader, you must be. X, Y, Z. And traditionally, that definition of a leader has been, you have to be male, you have to be white, you have to be a certain age, you have to be of a certain pedigree. So to me, it's about removing all of those labels. And I believe we're all leaders. And at times, you know, even being leaders, sometimes we're followers. So it's like, you can be the teacher as well as a student. So when I say leaders, I think it encompasses everyone. Yeah, I love that. And focusing on, you know, having like helping people step into more of that role of leadership, whatever that looks like for what their mission is. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. And so what do you mean when you say that it's through soul work? So soul work, uh, it's so I have to backtrack a little bit, because before, um, when I initially started my business, it was really focused on helping people use um, the web to market themselves online. And I had a lot of experience doing that. I worked for dot coms. Um, but the side of me that I never use that, I guess, has always been a part of me, it's been a part of my upbringing, which is doing spiritual work, um, and more practices that are aligned with, I guess, your soul, like what's the deepest part of you. I didn't incorporate that in my work. So in the beginning, I would just teach, okay, let's do, you know, this strategy, that strategy, that strategy. And as I kept getting this intuitive hit to like, okay, you have to put this more into your work. And so there were certain clients of mine who were using those strategies and they were having so much success and good, good for them. But then there were other people who were like, I'm doing the same things. However, I'm coming up against these blocks. So those blocks um, look like self-sabotage. It looked like fear. It looked like, you know, it looked like just negative self-talk. And in order to tackle those things, we had to go to the root of it. And usually the root Um, is something that happened to them in their childhood uh, that prevented them from really stepping out there. So as we would do that work, things would open up for them. And actually, even bigger things, like they plan to, let's say, um, launch a program and have it, you know, sell X amount of money, and it would be double. Um, So I just started seeing how even my cl- the clients that were doing the soul work, they were those strategies and doing the soul work, it, they were surpassing even my wildest expectations. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. Oh my gosh, it's so interesting. Okay, so um, I know that you have said, you write about this on your site, that you come from a lineage of healers, spiritual teachers, intuitives, artists, activists. I'd love to hear more about your history, sort of how you were raised when it comes to spirituality. 
It's really interesting because I I grew up in a family where everyone would wake up in the morning and talk about, oh, these are the dreams that I had last night and interpret those dreams. (laughs) So that's how I was raised. Like this dream means that. And this would be our breakfast conversation. And, um, you know, my dad and my mom, they're both healers. Um, And when I say healer, like pretty much everyone in my family, they're healers in some way. And either they work in the medical field, but besides working in the medical field, they also have some kind of spiritual practice. And that spiritual practice could look like affirmative prayer. It can look like ritual and ceremony. Um, It it just looks like different ways depending on who they are. So I was raised in really knowing that my connection to the numinous was not out there, but within me. So if I wanted to connect to God, I would just talk with it to myself, right? It was within me. It was not out there. So my, I always felt very connected, even as a little child. And, you know, growing up, I would, you know, witness my parents or my dad specifically, he would people will call him and he would have healings and, you know, he would have these prayers and ceremonies and rituals. Um, so I just witnessed that. So I just thought everyone grew up like that, you know, because that was my upbringing. And, but I, I know, did not grow up like that. I will tell you, <laughs> <laughs> but I just thought, Oh, this is what everyone does. Um, and so that was really a part of my life. Like I know we're going right now into the end of the year, but the end of the year in my family, it's such a big ritual of like how you close out the year and open up the next year um, and, you know, give gratitude and things. So there's a lot of prayer. There's a lot of meditation. There's a lot of like introspection um, as we're closing out the year and entering into a new year. So those are just the things that I, you know, I was raised with in terms of spirituality. And then I was raised, you know, I went to Catholic church too. So, and I remember being in Catholic church and church and being like, well, you know, that doesn't really, you know, I don't really believe that, you know, I don't believe God is out there. You know, um, I believe God is in here. So it's really interesting because I was also exposed to like different religions, like Catholicism, Protestant church. And I went to a whole bunch of different churches too. Mm-hmm. I'm really, I've been finding myself lately thinking more and more about tradition and ritual, which are both words that you've used, especially if you were not raised, <clears throat> excuse me, and do not have it in a religious context that in such a secular culture, I feel like there is still so much need for just tradition and ritual and the ways that we create that for ourselves, maybe if we didn't have it growing up. And I know you just uh, sort of lightly referenced some end of the year traditions, but are there any specific traditions or rituals that you have with with your family or that you have personally that you could share some details about? I'm so curious about what that looks like for folks. Well, I would say one of my traditions or one of the things that I do is um, uh, affirmative prayer and um, and I, affirmative prayer it's something that I actually learned at Agape through Reverend Michael Bernard Beckwith who's the leader of Agape and um, it's pretty much about the, the best way to describe it is you're not praying to some kind of God out there you're not begging for please change my life 
you are coming within an internal alignment with what it is that you say that you want to create or whatever you need to step into. So let's say I want to be more courageous. So I'm not saying, oh, please make me courageous. What I'm doing is activating the courage that is actually within me. It's somewhere within me and I'm, you know, activating it through my words, um, uh, through my thoughts, uh, but, you know, through my words. So if I'm praying through my words or just like the feeling sensation within me. Mm-hmm. When did meditation come into your life? Was that also something that your family exposed you to when you were young? Yes, they did expose me to meditation. However, I think a a big part of my meditation came in when I went to um, the Vipassana. I did a a 10-day silent meditation retreat. Um, And that, I remember when I stepped out of the retreat, my mind was crystal clear. I had never experienced my mind being that clear, ever. And it was 10 days of just silence and introspection and really not interacting with other people because we weren't even allowed to look at other people. Um, So it was, I would say during that time, I, I, I had, I had a, I had a meditation practice before then, but it just went a level deeper when I, when I went to that retreat for sure. Yeah. Okay. So I want to dig into this a little bit because I've, you know, I have other friends that have done a similar, you know, 10 day meditation, silent retreat, the same thing that you're describing. And I always thought, wow, that sounds really hard or really intense. And it wasn't until this uh, past fall, I did a long solo backpacking trip. And there was one stretch where I didn't see another human for four days. And that's for sure the longest that I've ever been alone. And it made me realize, I mean, I hardly ever go a day without speaking to someone else. And I don't know that I ever have in my life or even just talking to myself or having someone else to listen to my nonsense, right? I'm quite extroverted and being out there for four days. I mean, it it felt like the zombie apocalypse, like everyone had died and I was the only one. And it was in some ways the solitude was great, but it was also incredibly painful and scary. And I mean, I know that at a retreat, it's different because you're not completely alone. There are other people there, even if you're not interacting with them. But I'm curious to hear sort of internally what that experience was like for you. Like, was it really intense? If so, how were you? I don't know. For me, it was just like so overwhelming to be alone and quiet. It was intense. And I mean, it was intense that a lot of people left <laughs> because they they left after a day because you you go into the space like even though other people were around, we weren't allowed to make eye contact. You weren't allowed to speak to those people. So it really kept you. It, it felt as if you were alone, like there was no one else around. And also um, because of that. You also, while we were in meditation, we were, I think, meditating for like something like 12 to 14 hours a day. And <laughs> yeah, it was, it was intense. So during the meditation practice, they really suggested um, that you don't move. So like if you had like a little itch behind your ear, like you couldn't, you know, they suggested not to do that. And, and for me, I realized, oh my gosh, like this... It, it was that was really painful. Like the sensations when I was sitting in meditation, those sensations that came up in my body to just allow myself to just witness it instead of interact with it. That was really that was re- it was actually physically painful because sometimes I would feel like I was in pain and I wanted to get out of there. 
But um, there is this beautiful saying that um, Goenka, the man who who started this, um, says, he says, Anicca, Anicca, Anicca. And that essentially means it rises and passes away. So I would just, you know, Anicca, Anicca, Anicca. I knew that this moment would not last. Like that pain would not last. So through breath and just through witnessing, it did, it eventually did pass. Sometimes those moments were longer. Those moments of pain and discomfort were much longer than I would like to have them to be. However, ultimately it all did end. So when you came out of that experience, was it, I mean, I think transformational is maybe too intense of a word, but did it shift something for you or like how were things different maybe in your daily spiritual practice afterwards or, you know, what happened after? I would say, I mean, this, I I went to this retreat over 10 years ago and it's really been a part of my life. So I, I feel that it's about the, the lens that I view the world in. So I know that even if I'm having a not so great day, and I think, especially for me, the past year has been all about motherhood and with motherhood, there's a lot of ups and downs and knowing that even in the down moments that this too shall pass, but also in the up moments, knowing that this too shall pass. So let me savor this moment as well. Mm-hmm. So it's allowed me to, to savor life. Um, and the times where I'm like, oh my gosh, I just want this to end to know that it's okay. Tomorrow's a new day or it's, there's a new moment and it will rise and pass away. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is meditation something that you do daily? Yes, it is something that I do daily. Um, it, it definitely has been more of a challenge with motherhood because mm-hmm. I'm <laughs> really crafting that time to 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 be alone. But for me, meditation, I could meditate on my meditation cushion and it, it's just about getting out in nature. I love, you know, nature and just being out, you know, in, in big nature and by the ocean. That's what I, one of the things I loved about living in Los Angeles. But for me, it's, it's just making sure I have that daily time to disconnect so I can connect. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I want to talk about your experiences being a relatively new mom a little bit. Um, you mentioned the ups and downs. My first question is really about how motherhood is different than maybe what you thought or like wh- how, what have you been surprised by? <laughs> it's uh, I've been surprised by everything. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I don't think there's anything I haven't been surprised by. And you know what? And it's really interesting because I have my niece, I've played a very, very strong mother role in her life. So I've been a, par- a real big part of her upbringing. Like, you know, she considers me like her second mom. And sometimes she calls me mama. And even with that, it still did not prep me for motherhood. So that's been the most shocking, right? Because I was like, oh, okay, you know, I, I've i been raising and helping raise my niece and that, you know, and that will prep me. But it prepped me, I guess, a little bit to some extent. I know some things to expect, but it, it really hasn't. It, it really hasn't. And um I would say the thing that surprised me the most is the way that motherhood breaks you open in 
in so many different ways, emotionally, physically, especially when he was a newborn and having to be up. I was nursing at that time and, you know, I was nursing 12 hours a day um, because he was eating every couple of hours and it just in every single way. And, and it really made me see the ways that I disconnect, right? Um, and because this little human being, he's always connected. He's always like, he is always so present. So he always um, challenges me to be more present and, and not disconnect. Mm-hmm. What are the ways in which you were finding yourself disconnecting? Like, what did that look like? I guess it's just checking out, right? Just checking out in my mind, like I'm present with you, but then I'm thinking about something else. Sure, okay. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> like I'm just somewhere else doing something else and just doing things mindlessly, um, where with with him, everything, he's, he's so present. And I think, especially with having a baby, you know, you have to bring that level of presence. And that level of, of, of presence you know, whether he's, you know, he's having a great day or he's having a temper tantrum, uh, whatever is going on, I have to be present with him. Mm-hmm. And I notice the times that it's more challenging are the times where I'm like, oh, I just, I, I you know, I, I don't really want to be here. I want to be doing something else where I'm not really bringing my full presence. Mm-hmm. Did you always know that you wanted to have kids? I, it's something that I went back and forth with, honestly. I was okay, like, tell me about that. Yes. <laughs> it, it's something I'm like, uh, you know, I, I love kids. Like when I was a little kid, I was like, oh, I want to have kids. But then as I, you know, went into adulthood, I was like, oh, no, not really. I mm, No, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of responsibility. And I, I really wasn't sure. And and also, I don't know if you can relate, but being a, being a business owner, and also a woman, I was also afraid about all of the responsibilities um, that I have with my business and then having a child. And, um, you know, women, we often take the bigger share of the, the duties, the household duties. So I was really afraid of losing myself. Like I didn't want to lose myself. But I, I think deep down, I knew that being a mom would be a gift that I would be given. So it's not, you know, a lot of times it can be seen like, oh, you know, I'm doing so much for him, but he's also given me such an amazing gift um, by, by allowing me to experience motherhood, like, and all that, all that means. And that means so much, but um, yeah, I think there was a lot of fear around becoming a mom and, also what that meant to being able to achieve my dreams that were outside of motherhood. That's, yeah. that's what, yeah, I mean, that that's very honest. I'm, I'm grateful that you're that you're talking about this, because I think I would assume that that's a common fear of is this going to is the identity of being a mother going to become my only identity. And there's certainly nothing wrong with that if that's your main identity. But for someone that has that fear, I can imagine that that would be really common and something that I don't know, we're like not supposed to talk about, right? <laughs> and like, there's, I feel like mm-hmm. there's all this sacredness put on motherhood in a way that makes it inaccessible to discuss like the fears and everything that you just spoke to so well. Yeah, I think that that's the thing. Motherhood is not one thing. And when, when a woman, you know, becomes a mother, I think, um, 
I think there has to be a grieving process and a letting go process of the, of the maiden, because there is that stepping into uh, a motherhood, right? So you're crossing one threshold, you're leaving one threshold and crossing into another um, when you become a mother. And a lot of times I feel that women were not given the space to grieve, to have whatever emotions that we have around leaving that life behind because it's never going to come back. Um, it's, it's never, it's, it's done, that chapter is done. And for me, I felt that what was really important was allowing myself to grieve and to have all the emotions that I had, or even, you know, whatever the anger also of like, oh my gosh, I, you know, I was so free and what happened, whatever I was feeling and allowing myself to navigate through that. Um, and, and, you know, that also brings me to the shadow, right? We all, we we only want to look at, like you said, the sacredness of, of being a mother and not the other feelings that come up. And what, and what happens is that we leave, you know, a lot of women flopping in the wind who are dealing with postpartum depression and who are, you know, dealing with all different issues around being a, a, a mom. Um, so I just think it's something like we need to just, you know, I see like celebrities, they're like, oh, I became a mom. And the next day they're at the gym and they're doing all these things. And we create a lot of these false images around motherhood <laughs> and uh, what it means to be a mother. And also what it means to like, once you have a baby, what you should be doing as a woman. And I think we need to just let go of that. That's Oh my gosh, I just I can talk about that all day. <laughs> mm -hmm. No, I love this. I also love what you're speaking to this idea that it's not simple. It's complex. It's a both and. You can be ecstatic about your child and about being a mother and also all the other things that you said, afraid that you're going to lose yourself, angry, grieving, like that there's, I don't know, sometimes I feel like we don't give ourselves enough credit that we can have multiple emotions at the same time and it doesn't make any of them less valid. It doesn't mean that you love your child less because you're also angry sometimes. Yeah. And there's a lot, so much pressure on saying, oh, well, you don't love your child or you're bad and you're a bad mother. Like, I think that's everyone. No one wants to be a bad mother. <laughs> and sometimes it, what it is, I think if we're going like, I'm just thinking about the shadow right now, but it's about letting go of either identities. It's about embracing all of all of our identities, like embracing the anger, embracing the fear, embracing the sacredness of being a mom, because it is sacred. But then there are days that you're dealing with a baby that's crying and inconsolable. Mm -hmm. And it's like hard to be Zen at that time. And that's okay, because we're human. And, you know, that's where I tie it back to spiritual practice. I'm like, okay, this will pass. Maybe I just need to take a break. All right, you can cry for a little bit. I'm going to step away from this and it's going to all be okay. But it's, it's about when we only want it to be, you know, like that, um, that picture perfect image of what family and what motherhood and what, you know, having these perfect children should look like. Mm -hmm. I also think that trying so hard to maintain, I mean, it could be motherhood, it can be in any different life arena, this image of perfection or of upholding some kind of, I think, oftentimes very unrealistic standard. It's actually sort of a weapon to be used against other people, other women like that. It's not doing anyone any favors to pretend that everything's perfect. It's not. And actually, this is um, that weapon is actually page patriarchy 
right? And a lot of a lot of women don't realize that the need for perfection, the need for um, everything to look a certain way, to have this facade, are actually some of the principles that that drive a lot of the the things in society that we might not believe in. Mm-hmm. Um, so this patriarchal society that says, okay, you have to be this. Um, if you're not this, then you know you're you're an outsider. You're you're less than. You're we can dehumanize you. Um, so I think it's actually linked with um, an even bigger conversation around around um, what drives some of the things that you know in our society that that actually suppress us. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah. I want to go back to something that you were saying before about, um, you know, you had this strong identity and creative goals and with, you know, your business and owning a business and the fear of losing yourself and what's going to happen, you know, once you have a child and that decision making process. I'm curious what the conversation about that topic looked like with your partner. Yeah, I think we both had the same fears. (laughs) I don't want to speak for him uh, as much, but like we're, you know, we've always been people who are pretty free spirited, um, just very free spirited. Like we just go where the wind (laughs) takes us and, um, and having a child, I think we, you know, felt, oh, well, how can we still be free spirited? Um, so actually our conversations, it just went, it just kind of went back and forth between like, okay, is this something that we want to do? And, and actually my son was not, he wasn't planned. (laughs) So it was a surprise for both of us. So it wasn't like, oh, we're going to do this. Um, uh, and, and it happened. It, it wasn't planned and it was actually perfect. Like it was, we could see like, oh, okay. It was part of a bigger plan. Um, but our conversations, I'm just trying to think of something a bit more specific to say to you. Um, Well, what we thought about is bigger than our careers. Let's fast forward to when we're, if we're lucky enough to be 90 years old and thinking back on our lives, what is it that we want to say? And for both of us, and I just think I'm seeing my son, Isaiah, for both of us, we said, you know, it would be really beautiful to know that we created this human being and helped him or her to grow um, and fulfill his desires or her desires. We didn't know whether it was a boy or a girl or twins or whatever, but we, but instead of being in the, in the present and, you know, being in the, whatever was going on in our lives at the moment, we actually put ourselves a bit more in the future and look back at our lives. And then from there, we're like, huh, you know, that, I guess that's something that does matter to us. We would like to at least have one child. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's it's one of those things that can almost get cliche that we're told to do. Like, you know, what do you want your legacy to be? Look forward. What, but it's actually really impactful. I this is slightly related, or I guess really related, but sort of a different subject. I recently bought a new piece of art for my home office that I'm looking at right now, and it's it's basically just a quote, or it's you know like black text on a white background, and there's a line in the middle of it that says, "What you do today is important because you're exchanging a day of your life for it." And I've been thinking about that, like, that's, to me, like, really related to what you were just saying, right? Like, this is our life, you're exchanging a day of your life for it. And when you get to be hopefully 90, like you said, and looking back, you know, what will you have wanted to exchange each day of your life for? Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think, yeah, and like you said, it can get really cliche, and I think it's really important to ground it. And the way that you ground it, I think, is is really by going within your heart. So it's not about um, some kind of societal um, or what my parents want, you know, what society says. It's really in your heart. And I, for me, I really felt like this soul uh, was was around me <laughs> and wanted to wanted to meet like on this physical plane. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's what I felt it, it, you know, opposed to having like, Oh, this is what my mom would want or what even my legacy would be. Because I don't know what, um, with my son, Isaiah, I don't know what our contract is. I'm just living it day by day. Uh, I hope that it's, you know, we get to spend many, many, many years together, but I, you know, I don't know what our contract is. So yeah, so that that's that's where I came from in that process. What if anything in your relationship with your partner has changed now that you have a child? I'm always curious about that too, especially um it sounds from the, the you know the way that you talk about your relationship when I've seen you write about it um online even, you know, on your about page that you have a strong relationship and so when you have a strong twosome, right? That then the family grows. I'm always curious how the dynamic shifts and, you know, what people do to still keep that relationship a priority, even though there's this whole other person. Yeah. I mean, honestly, it challenged our relationship. Like it really did because, um, all the focus, especially in the beginning is going towards this newborn. Mm -hmm. So whatever issues, you know, are there, they, I think they got magnified (laughs) because of the baby. So like a little, you know, okay, you didn't put this away. turns into like, oh my gosh, you don't care. (laughs) Something really big. And I'm, I'm serious. It really did. So I think what we had to do is, um, really learn to communicate. And that included um, going to therapy um, and, and, and learning to navigate this, this new, it's like a threesome, right? This new th- trio, I should say, a trio, uh, because there's a whole new person and learn to um, balance that and also keep our relationship a priority and also communicate with that. So it was really helpful. And I think um, also uh, we we went to this woman who she specializes with postpartum health. So she was really attuned to what is going on in relationships and with new mothers. So for me, it was really great. And I feel like preventative from to even going into postpartum depression and, and dealing with those issues as well. So um, really reaching out and getting help um, was really, was really great. Um, I love that. I love that you said that. It reminds me, a friend of mine who's a mother was talking to me about sort of about this same topic and how motherhood, much like marriage, is one of those things that it just sort of, our cultural story is that it's perfect and it's easy. And yeah, like we say that it's hard, but it's in this sort of obscure, still really pretty way that you're just, you have a baby and everything just works out. And and like her, the way she was talking about it to me is if you, you and your partner, that's just one relationship that you manage. And then all of a sudden, even having one child, then it's your relationship with your partner. It's your relationship with your child. It's your partner's relationship with your child. It's the relationship all of you have together as a family. Like all of a sudden there's all these new relationships that have to get built and maintained and balanced. And she was like, nobody ever talks about the fact that that's hard. Mm. Yeah, no one does. And no one, you know, when, 
when you start talking to people about it, they're like, and they start sharing their stories like, oh, well, yeah, we went through that. I'm like, why didn't you say anything? Right. Stop <laughs> posting pretty baby pictures only and tell me that you were in therapy. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. That's what actually was happening. That happened to us. Like, we, you know, people that were around us, we found out that they, you know, they went through really challenging births and all of these things happened. And we're like, wait a minute, why didn't you say anything? But in our society, it's really, it's taboo to talk about that. It's considered like, oh, we're breaking some Im- image or even, I, I know the feeling like you might not want to talk about it with somebody who's expecting a, a child because you don't want to project what happened to you onto them. So I, I understand those kind of things as well. But um I think honest conversations, honest and frank conversations are definitely necessary around um, motherhood, parenthood, fatherhood. Um, Those are definitely necessary for Mm -hmm. sure. Yeah, I think so too. I mean, and it's, yeah, to your point, it's not that you have to, you know, put all your stuff on someone else. It's not that people aren't entitled to privacy. Of course, all of that is true as well. And also, we just need to be more open about things, right? That it's like, why is it such a surprise when you find out that someone else has also struggled with something? Like we invest so much of our time and energy into maintaining, I don't know, some image that everything's fine. Mm-hmm. You know, and I mean, clearly I'm all about the honesty and the real talk, but I'm always just so grateful when, when people like you are willing to be like, nope, this was my experience. That's <laughs> like amazing. Yeah. Me. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, I mean, what, even with us, we had a, we had a very challenging birth, like, um, and the pregnancy there was, you know, for me, it was relatively, a a non, there was no kind of crazy surprises during the pregnancy. It was just feeling like crap all the time. <laughs> and I was like, no one told me, like, I thought I would, I would be able to do all of these things even while being pregnant. And I was like, no, I just need to lie down like for eight hours a day um, for a lot of the time and just really rest. And um, so even that, even, you know, the pregnancy itself, like I just had this whole other image of what it would be like. And it wasn't like that for me. And that doesn't mean if, you know, if we do have another child, uh, it won't be that. But I only saw the images of, you know, people are like jogging and going to, you know, yoga all the time and that kind of stuff when they're pregnant. Mm-hmm. Yeah. My friend Lauren was was on the show recently and it was she was, I think, a week away from having her second baby at that point. It was talking all about this. Her second pregnancy was her first one was relatively easy and her second one she felt absolutely awful the whole time. And that she was just like, Yeah, we're given these images of sort of like cute pregnancies, right? And again, of course, that can be someone's experience, but it can also be the complete opposite. And the more open conversations, the more that you don't then feel like a failure when it doesn't look like, you know, sort of the small amount of representation that you've seen. Mm. Yeah, and I, I remember I I wish I could remember who wrote this article, but I remember um, I read this article a while ago that um, this woman said she realized that her, all of the thoughts that she had, all these negative thoughts that she had, was actually patriarchal thinking that was that she was raised with and brought up with, and and once again, I just think a lot of the 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 perfectionism the the trying to uphold some kind of standard, some image, some facade really is a societal um, issue about, you know, we try to uphold this patriarchal thing that tells us we have to be perfect. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <sighs> yeah, it's a lot. <laughs> Let's solve that all in the next hour. Um, how do you 
think about raising a, I don't even know what the word to insert is here, like feminist, compassionate, like son, basically, like you're mentioning patriarchy, all these things, like, how do you think about that in terms of how to raise the child that you want to raise in this world? It's, it's really interesting, because I was like, oh, wow, you know, I, I have a son, like, everyone actually thought I was gonna have a daughter, because <laughs> there's so many women in my family. And then, you know, here's the son. And I really think it's, it starts with a keen awareness of himself, and because I think girls, we, you know, as women and, you know, girls and growing up to women, we deal with certain issues. Boys who grew up into men deal with other issues. And a lot of those issues are about suppressing their quote unquote feminine persona. And when I say feminine, it's not about sex. It's just about qualities or a masculine. It's not about sex. It's just about qualities. And we both, you know, men and women have the feminine and the masculine within us. And what ha- what happens is that for boys is that they're, you know, they're, they're raised to suppress the, the feminine quality. So um, they're not supposed to cry. They're not supposed to share their feelings. They're not supposed to do whatever, all those things that society considers girly. So we raise these, you know, hyper masculine boys who are not able to really truly be in relationships or even be in the world. Um, and I see, you know, I think that in the world, we're seeing a lot of, a, a lot of that. That's why, um, we're seeing all the sexual harassment, the sexual, all these things related to, to, to sex. That's a whole other topic because I think that also has to do with power. But I think raising a boy that's integrated with those masculine and feminine qualities and compassion. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's through conversation. I think it's through examples. Um, uh, seeing, you know, my, my husband, I feel, is someone who does embody both those qualities well and seeing it through example as well. So I think, I I think I have a great partner to show him that example. Um, and, and I think, I, I mean, I, I really don't have all the answers because I know he's going to be going to school and they're going to be um, you know, ex- he's going to be exposed to certain things. We live in a really liberal, artsy area, so I feel we're lucky in in that sense. Um, but I, I'm interested to to see what that journey is mm-hmm. because, you know, even now, you know, we're just trying not to. Oh, he's a boy, so therefore he has to be interested in this. Um, so we're we're really trying not to do that and just allow him to be a human being before he's a boy. Um, so that, yeah, and like, let him define what, what his, you know, gender expression is going to be. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. Opposed yeah. to even me even saying that, right. Because, um, someone had s- another article that I had seen is that, you know, we impose the, the gender. I think it's one thing to say, okay, yes, you have the male sex organs or you have female sex organs, but then allowing that child to freely express what, who they are mm-hmm. is, is a whole different thing. Yeah, no, I think that's beautiful. So uh, pivoting a little bit, but still in the family space, um, 
when you had first reached out to me and we were emailing about potentially things to discuss, you mentioned some some stories that you would be open to talking about. One of the things that you mentioned um, that you would be open to talking about was your father's death and sort of what that was like. And I felt really grateful that you brought that up because, again, I think that death and grief are often topics that we collectively have agreed are too messy and uncomfortable to be honest about. And I don't know. So I, I would love to hear anything in that that you would like to to speak about. Um, I think as you were just saying that, uh, what came to me is that if we can't be with our grief, we really can't be with our joy and we, we can't. And I think a lot of people don't realize that. And actually when we work through the grief, there's so many gifts within that grief. So with my dad's passing, there was a lot of grief. However, um, the, the joy or the gifts that came through that was really me stepping more into my purpose um, because of his passing. And actually also because of his passing, it, it led to my husband and I uh, reuniting. And we, we actually got married like a, a little over a year after that. So through his death, And through processing that grief and giving myself the space to process that grief, I was also allowed to to, to have gifts. There were also gifts on the other side. That's not to say like, oh my gosh, I don't miss him. Of course, I miss him so much. However, um, the thing is, I know that there's something there, you know, there's life on earth. And then there's something greater. Um, we're actually also in my family, we're dealing with one of my family members. We just found out that, you know, she has cancer and, you know, just navigating all of that, you know, that brings up, you know, the conversation of death and all of that again. And one of the things that I, I was speaking to her recently and she said to me, we so focus on that there's life on earth, this life, but there's, there's other life that we don't know about. There's life beyond. And she said, you know, if, if this is her end, she's, then she's okay with that. She's okay with that because there is something more. It's a next journey. And I just thought that that's really beautiful. Um, I know we, I kind of went off the topic, but (laughs) No, I mean it's it's all part of the same topic. I and and I think I think that is beautiful and I also think that that's not the way a lot of people feel because of this fear around death, right? Like like not not having as maybe as much of a a peaceful, I don't know, a, approach to it or look at it as what you just described. Yeah, and I guess in my conversation with her I I what I came away with was that it's it's brave to live, but it's also brave to die. Mm. Like there's, it's not because we sometimes think, oh, okay, death, it's weak, or I don't know, some something else. But it's brave to live and it's brave to die as well. And um, and we're not meant to be here forever, <laughs> like that. We all we all know that. So and you know, one of the things she was sharing with me is that we all try to hold on to this so much, but um, we're only holding on to it. That's actually our ego holding on to it because we don't, we don't know what, you know, there, there could be something even better after this. So, mm-hmm. That's so well <laughs> so said. I, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm, I, you mentioned grief and grieving. 
I think that's one of those words that obviously when you say grief, I think everyone knows the connotation of that. But I think it's it's similar. I think about this for me, you know, with mental illness, like depression. That's another word that, you know, we hear, but the act, like having, hearing someone describe what that is for me, you know, my experience of, you know, my depression might be different from someone else's, probably is. There's similarities, there's differences. And I always think that taking things a little bit more specific can be helpful to just un- like not only to help understand someone else's lived experience, but to have those sort of me too moments, like what you were mentioning about hearing other friends talk about, you know, when they had their first child or being open about stuff that you feel less alone. So I'm wondering if you would be comfortable talking about what the actual experience of that grief was like for you. Like what is, what did that look like on a day-to-day basis? It, It looked like I felt like I wanted to die. That's really it. Like I, I felt completely devoid of hope and I'm like just going back there and I just felt completely devoid of hope and like a part of me died and that I could never get back Mm -hmm. so it, it it felt like the depths of despair and um and it was a scary place to be. And my mom was, was like, oh, my God, you know, she just wanted me to snap out of it because, you know, seeing your child go through this 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 level of grief. Um, and I guess what helped me through is once again, I I just felt that I just had to take it day by day. And that's one of the things my family member, she's, she says to me, she's like, it's day by day. You know, she's taking it moment by moment. And I just had to take it day by day. And, um, and, and, you know, they talk about all the stages of grief. I don't know all the stages off the top of my head, but um, I think it's breathing through it, crying through it, finding community, because with grief, it's so easy to want to isolate ourselves. Um, And, you know, I wanted to just, you know, stay, just stay in the room. But I, I I found my community, I leaned on my community a month after, is it, I think about two months, a month and a half after my dad passed away, I went um, with my husband, we went to Puerto Rico. And that, you know, would seem like, oh, my gosh, you're supposed to be grieving. And why are you in Puerto Rico? However, that was an important part of the grieving process, traveling and just being in there's something for me, especially just being in the water and being close to nature and just giving over my feelings and to the water. Like just, I don't know if that even makes sense. It makes so much sense. It makes so much sense. It also makes so much sense. This idea what you just said about, oh, I'm not supposed to be, you know, traveling or whatever, that so much of how we get through things is allowing it to look however it looks, right? It's not like, I don't know, go to, go to Puerto Rico if you want to go to Puerto Rico, right? Like the, why does, why does grief or anything like it's supposed to be over in this amount of time? Oh, why haven't you snapped out of it yet? Oh, you're doing this. You shouldn't be that. It's not, I don't know. There's no prescription. Yeah, there, there is no prescription. And I also think, um, that grief, we also, uh, only link it to death, right? Mm-hmm. But grief can, is like I mentioned before, even transitioning from mother to, I mean, from maiden to mother, you can grieve that process, whatever it is. Like there's so many things, I think, ungrieved things in our lives, big and small, moving, 
right? I, you know, even moving from the West Coast back to the East Coast, I had to grieve allow myself to grieve, right? It's not the same level of grief of, as when my dad passed away. But I think um, overall in our life, grief is a part of our lives. And if we give ourselves space to grieve, like even, even on a day-to-day basis, things that bother us, right? A lot, of, a lot of the times that the reason it's not processed is that we're not giving ourselves the space to, to, to process it and to let it go. So to me, grief is really about the the process of letting our feelings be what they are so that we can let it go. And when we are able to let it go, it transmutes, it's able to transmute to something else. It's able to alchemize into something else. Um, but if we hold on to it, it just, you know, it rots, right? If it's like, you know, if you keep a banana. And you never, you know, you, you don't eat it. You just leave it there. It's going to eventually rot. So I think the same thing with our emotions. If we, if we don't allow ourselves to process those emotions and, and whatever grief that we need to process, it just, it just stays with us. That's so brilliant. I love everything that you just have, like having a moment of, (laughs) oh my God, preach. Um, yeah, I don't know that I've ever thought about, because you're right. Grief is so tied into sort of death and loss in the way that we think of it, and that it is present in so many, you know, big and small situations and, you know, learning how to do that. I think a lot about like letting things be uh, like a both and. So meaning that you could be really happy about moving to the East Coast, like that could be the right decision for you. It's not some tragic thing that's happening. And also you can be grieving the things that you're leaving behind, right? It's what we were talking about before, being able to hold space for seemingly conflicting emotions or states. And I think, I thought I wound up thinking about grief when I quit drinking, what, that was like six and a half-ish years ago, a little over six and a half years, that was definitely the right choice for me. It was hard for sure. And obviously a lot of stuff came up after that. And I felt really guilty that I was having a hard time letting go of and needing to grieve sort of who I was losing as this like fun, drunk party girl. Like there was an identity there that I was really attached to and it had been my identity for such a long time. And well, I was moving to something better and healthier. So why am I feeling grief? And it took me, I mean, this is very retroactive. It took me years to get maybe, you know, four and a half, five years to get to the point where I realized that that I had never done that. I had never grieved for that. I had never thought that that was okay. And I felt like I couldn't actually do the work the real work of being sober that I'm starting to do now, you know, six plus years later, only on the heels of finally, like you said, like finding the rotted banana and being like, okay, I'm going to actually work through this. <laughs> mm. I love that you, you know, how you link that to your journey with sobriety because yes, even, you know, that's, that's really interesting because most people don't think, oh, well, you know, you, you don't even, there's nothing to grieve around that. Like, what are you, what are you going to grieve about? However, there is, like you said, there's, you know, there's a quality. So the qualities of fun and uh, fun loving and part of that grieving process is, I think, reowning, like maybe in that in that space of like reowning some qualities within ourselves, because we can still or you can still be fun and, and loving without the alcohol. Mm-hmm. Um, and. And so sometimes, you know, the grieving process is also about reclaiming certain parts of ourselves. I'm trying to think of like an example, if I can think of an example, um, another example of how how that can can manifest. Um, But yeah, I guess 
I guess the example is like, um, you know, even going from being a single woman to married and in a monogamous relationship, right? Oh, you know, that's, that's, there's like, there's a process of like going from single, I can grieve being single and what that was. Oh, I was so free. I could do anything that I want. So the thing that I asked myself then was, well, how can I bring that level of freedom within the relationship that I'm in right now? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I also something else around this idea of grief and reclaiming that you're talking about. I think that we often are kind of told the story, especially with like the stages of grief or that it's a linear process that has a beginning and an end, right? There's some kind of catalyst into the grief. You go through the stages. It lasts this certain amount of time that it's supposed to last. And then the grieving's over and like, ta-da, everything fine. And I mean, I haven't um, yet had the death of a parent, but other deaths, other things, grief the way we're talking about. What's been surprising to me and something else that I wish that people talked about more is that it's not a linear process. And I feel like it just kind of spirals. Like I'm happily married for sure and love my partner. And sometimes I definitely still miss being single or grieving. It doesn't mean that I love him less or that, you know, that, and I agree with what you're saying about being able to bring some of those qualities into the relationship. And also it's okay if grief just randomly pops up, right? Like it's, I would assume that it's not like you got to the end of whatever your grieving was about your father's passing. And it's just, okay, well, that's over. <laughs> like that, that's sort of how we think about it though. It is. We think about in a, in a linear way. And it was really interesting because I guess a month or so back, I was actually um, having a conversation with someone around my with around my dad. Actually, it was a it was an interview. And during that interview, there was another level of grief that I hadn't experienced that came up in that interview that needed to get let go of. And I didn't even know. So it's like and it's been a number of years now. Um, so the thing is, if I had been attached to the idea of what it's supposed to look like, I wouldn't have allowed myself to move through it and to be okay with whatever it's look, you know, whatever it is. So I think it's about letting go of what we think grief is supposed to look like or what anything is supposed to look like and let it be what it is for us. Mm-hmm. And whatever that is, so whether it's motherhood, whether it's grief, whether it's marriage, whatever it is, letting go of, you know, the, the images that we have that the media and society puts upon us and, and letting it be what it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think about this all the time. I mean, we can use grief as the example just for this, but it could be a lot of other things that not only are you going through the experience then and the pain of the grief, but then you're also going through like the extra level of pain of giving yourself a hard time with language like, oh, I'm not supposed to feel this way anymore. What's wrong with me that I'm not over this yet? It's like you're beating yourself up over a thing that's already painful. Like just let the thing be what it is and move through it. And it's like that second layer of stuff that's like a whole extra world of pain that essentially like we're choosing, we're opting into that. (laughs) Yeah. And I think a lot of people, it's more about, I have so many much, I have important things to do. (laughs) And I think it's like, okay, if you're running a business or you, you know, you, whatever it is that you do, you're like, okay, let's get on with it. It's time. It's time to move on with this. And, and, you know, I need to get on with my life and that I understand completely that desire of getting on with, with life. However, we we're not really truly able to get on with life if we're not able to look at these, you know, these things, we're not able to be with our grief. And, you know, that 
I think going back to what when you're asking me about Tulum, that was a beautiful part of Tulum. Here we were in this beautiful, magical setting and letting go of all of this grief, letting go of so much sadness, letting go of all of these emotions and in this in, in this beautiful environment and and letting it alchemize into something else. Mm-hmm. So a couple times earlier when you were talking, you used the word shadow a few different times. Um, will you, and I know that's a word you use in your work too, um, will you just explain that, what you mean when you say that? So the shadow are, it's the part of ourselves that we deny. It's the part of, of ourselves that we repress. It's the part of ourselves that we judge, um, that we don't show into the show the world. So, um, so for example, I had spoken about this, a a shadow could be something like I am not worthy or I am not beautiful. I am, you know, I am bad. (laughs) Even I am bad. So those are all shadows. And a lot of times these, the shadows, what they are, there are wounds and they are actually driving our behavior. Um, and I think a lot of times when we're going into doing shadow work, it's about looking at those wounds and allowing, giving ourselves the space to not judge them anymore so that we can heal. Hmm. Can you give an example of what that's looked like? Because I mean, that sounds awesome, right? I think everyone listening is like, yep, sign me up for that. I want to heal all the things. But in your own life of doing your own shadow work, um, sort of how it's looked to integrate something specific and and work through that? Yeah, I think, you know, one of the shadows that I've worked with, uh, worked on, I should say, is I am not worthy. And for me, what that looked like, I think it's, you know, ever since I was a child, it looked like me putting everything into other people. So I would just build other people up. Um, I w- I'm so good at just being of service to other people. And then I just put myself last. So, um, and that looked like in every area of my life. So it looked like relationships that weren't where I put myself last. You know, I got abusive relationships, um, friendships where uh, those friends weren't, they were literally backstabbing me. But it was really because of that shadow of I am not worthy. Uh, even when I started my business, I still had that shadow. I had worked through it some, but I was still not really putting myself out there and, and judging myself like, well, I'm not ready. I'm not ready. I'm not ready. And, and helping other people in their businesses. Um, but not really putting the energy and focus into, into my business. Um, so that's the way it's looked in different areas of my life. Um, and, in working through that and owning I am I am worthy, I've had to embrace the gifts of what not being worthy has given me. What do you mean? So it's interesting. Like we think, oh, I am I am not worthy. You would think, well, I don't want that. However, even in I am not worthy, there are gifts. So for me, it could be different for different people. But for me, the gifts of being of not being worthy allowed me to be very, very humble. Um, It allowed me to be someone 
of service. Like I'm super compassionate. I'm able to really feel what other people feel. So that those are like gems within even my business. So even something as crazy as like, I am not worthy. Like, why would you want that? It, it still has served me. So because I got those gifts and I was able to, you know, integrate it. And I'm, when I say that it's a constant process, I'm at a certain level with that, but I'm, you know, the same way as grief. I'm open to, maybe I have to look a level deeper. Maybe that onion needs to be peeled or that flower needs to bloom a little bit more. But, um, in, in stepping into, I am worthy, I had to also embrace the gifts of not being worthy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Because it sounds so easy to just be like, well, you know, this, this idea of, of not being worthy or, you know, not worthiness sounds like a bad thing. So, okay, why wouldn't I just want to get rid of that as quick as possible? Okay. But it doesn't have to be this black and white dichotomy, right? Like it, there's also good. It did serve you in some ways So being able to I feel like from what you're saying, it's like looking at it more holistically is what then lets you do an integration and make sort of a, a pivot into that belief of worthiness. Yeah, it's I think what you say holistically. So I think it all goes back to wholeness. And one of the one of the um, quality what wholeness essentially means is all of it. <laughs> it. It doesn't mean only this, only worthiness. It means worthiness and unworthiness. Mm-hmm. It means good and bad. It means um, alcoholic and sober. It means all of it. So it's not it's not just one thing. Um, and so when we're completely whole, we're able to make choices from our highest opposed to making choices from our, our wounds, our pain, our shadow. Yeah. Or, or from, sort of maybe a, a fear-based place of just trying to cherry pick the things that you've deemed good, right? Like, okay, well, I only want to be worthy and I only want to be, like, if you pick only the, you know, quote, good things, like, that's not whole. And so that's never going to be a stable place from which to move forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, that's so interesting. Huh, um, what do you think, I don't know if myths or misconceptions is, is the right word, but um, potentially any myths or misconceptions that you think someone might have about the work that you do or about sort of the spiritual industry in general? I think the biggest myth is that it's a side thing. It's like something you do on the side. Mm. (laughs) I think it is the work it, you know, it is the work in order to truly be whole. Um, and when I say it is the work, I'm not saying that this specific work, because I feel like there's different bodies of work and it's about finding what you are drawn towards. So when I'm saying the work, I feel like overall we can call a lot of the work that I've seen people do that are in that space. It's some kind of spiritual work and, or some soul work. And so even approaching my business, I, I approach my business with this work. That's how I approach my business. It's just how I approach my life. It's a way of being, it's a way of living my life. It's not this, you know, okay, that's a side thing. After I do my, you know, my marketing strategy by the book, then I'll do this. It's Mm -hmm. no, I come at it through the lens of soul work. So I'm 
you know, as much as possible, I'm putting on the lens of soul work and living my life through that lens. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's so well said. It hits on something that I it's not I mean, it's not a new topic, but it's something I've been thinking about particularly lately, this really narrow, like, what do I want to say, sort of narrow parameters in which we think thing like we deem things valuable right and i mean obviously so much of it has to do with um you know you mentioned patriarchy before capitalism like this society of you know you have to be productive in order to be worthy right and looking at the output and all these things that you know it's you have the spiritual stuff or to work with that or to hire a coach okay well that would be nice to have but that's extra the thing that matters is like did i check all these things off the list or right like that kind of mentality and then how do you you know, categorize the value of things that don't fall into that, like very, you know, linear specific, you know, productivity thing. And I, I, it's not actually a question that I'm asking, but I do, I do think about that a lot about the things that fall outside of that narrow scope and that those are often the more valuable things. And yet we culturally don't value them or don't seem to value them that much. Yeah. And I think if we look at even historically, right, um, if we go back in time, we were very, very connected with the earth. And that's the thing, like, um, you know, my mom, you know, she talks about her childhood of, you know, they would plant by the moon. And, you know, my mom, she's someone who uh, she could walk down the street and tell you like all what all the leaves are. And she's she's like a plant medicine expert. And um, this connection to the earth uh, was something that was very, very um, deemed highly then. And with technology and with, it's just like we've lost with time, we've lost that connection. And I feel that so many people are craving that connection. Like even personally in my business, I've, I was talking to one of my clients and I said, you know, I really feel, even though I started my business in the online space, I'm really feeling called to create more community in person, this one-on-one connection, you know, more retreats and, um, and just connecting one-on-one. And I think that, that all is connected to, to soul work because, you know, in, in life, that's what we crave. You know, human beings, we've always lived in tribes and, um, and we crave connection. That's our natural instinct. Like even a baby, they, they want to connect. Um, so mm-hmm. I don't know if I answered your question. <laughs> I know. I don't but- even know that I had a question. It's just, yeah, I, I think, I think it's, you know, around another potentially like myth or, you know, whatever about, about spirituality or about this work is I, I think this idea that, um, spirituality can't coexist with ambition or with drive, that spirituality is seen. And obviously this, of course, this is a blanket statement, right? But I do think that there is some truth in the fact that this is a viewpoint that a lot of folks hold, that it's seen as this sort of like soft, zen, okay, nice to have. But so I'm curious for you, what does it look like for you to balance spirituality with ambition, if balance is even the right word? Well, I would say that um, our ambitions, our desires were put into our hearts by our soul. And I'm going to say with that with a caveat, because we have to see, you know, because sometimes certain desires that we might hold are ego based desires. And however, if we go deeper, we will find whatever that true desire is, what that true desire, what our soul truly wants to express. 
And, you know, we put the word, oh, that's our, that's being ambitious. However, all it is, it's that's what our soul truly wants to express while we came here on earth. For some people, their soul truly wants to express living in the, you know, Himalayan mountains and meditating and praying. For some people, the way that their soul truly wants to express is by making art. For some people, it's through coaching. So it's about also not judging and labeling how our soul wants to truly express as long as you know, it's coming from a genuine and authentic place. And um, taking the pressure off and knowing that it's, it's a lifelong, it's a, it's a journey, and maybe that journey may change. Maybe we might find, okay, it, it's, it's looking a little bit different right now. However, the way that I reconcile it is knowing that if I am truly connected to what my soul wants to express, it's not based on ego. It's truly based on what I came here to do. Mm-hmm. I struggle with that a lot. Is this something that I actually want? Or is this something that my ego wants, because it would make me feel good? <laughs> I feel like that's something that and maybe this is just practice, right? You practice more and you get better at it. But that's something that for me is much easier said than done in in terms of being able to parse that out. I mean, so I don't know if you have any tips or advice, but I've of really knowing the difference between, okay, this is a, this is a soul desire versus this is an ego desire. So what I have to say about that is I think even sometime, even an ego desire has the seeds of soul within it. And I think that we can do what, uh, like uh, an actual thing that you can do is let's say you have this desire and whatever it is, and ask yourself, so what does my ego want out of the desire? And what does my soul want out of this desire? And, and break it up into those two categories. Mm. And, and it's okay, right? They can coexist. So it's not about making it wrong. But um, you might find, okay, maybe this desire, there's nothing that my soul wants. So you'll know, okay, well, I guess this is truly an ego based desire. And then from there, you can make a choice of whether you want to let that go. Um, or, oh, actually this desire, there's some that I thought that was ego. There's some really important things that my soul wants to express. So I'll just take an example. Let's say I want to make, uh, I want to write a a, a film, right? I want to write a a script or I want to write a book. The, the, the ego desire could be, well, I want to be a famous author. That's an example. But I want to be a famous author. I want to be in the New York Times bestselling list. And the soul could say, I want to, I want to touch as many people and help them overcome, let's say, depression. So I think when we approach the work, let's say the, the, the actual task of, of writing the book, it's about going through the soul. So instead of sitting down, I think that's actually sometimes what gets people stuck is that we, you know, we sit down and then, you know, we're like, oh my gosh, I want to write a best-selling book. It's going to be number one on the New York Times bestseller bestsellers list, opposed to deepening into, I want to touch that one woman out there who is struggling right now with depression and use me through these words I'm about to write so that I can help her. Mm-hmm. It's completely different. So I think that's, that's just one. 
No, I, I, I think that's that's really helpful and insightful because it is different, and yet outwardly it might look the same, right? Like that it might take being a best-selling book in order for it to reach the number of people that then it reaches that woman, you know? And I, I think about this in terms of, you know, whether it's number of followers on social media or, you know, the ego desire of wanting to be liked. Well, but also the soul desire there potentially is about wanting to connect, right? And that those might exist in the same... Yeah, I, I, I like what you're saying a lot. This gave me something to think about. Thanks. <laughs> You're welcome. (laughs) Do you have any other sort of favorite questions to ask or exercises to give, you know, clients or folks that are at your retreats? I mean, obviously, I know that your work encompasses so much more, but is there anything that you find is really effective for helping people get unstuck in any way? Anything that pops up into your mind? I think the thing that I would say that helps people get unstuck is the first thing is what do you desire? And it sounds really simple, but a lot of people deny their true desire. So even, um, you know, I'll take myself an example. I'm a mom and I, I love being a mom. However, I have a desire to, you know, be free. I want to have, I want to still travel and do those things. So, um, really being, truthful with ourselves as to what we truly desire, I think is the first step because what a lot of people do is that they say, oh no, I can't have that. Or no, my life is not, you know, conducive to that. Oh, I'm this, so I can't do that. Or I've done this, or I, you know, I can't do that. In some way, shape or form, they're saying I can't do that. So the first thing is about really giving ourselves the permission to have what we truly desire. And then from there, it's about doing the soul work, the shadow work um, that, that keep us from, from really experiencing what we say we want to experience or embodying the qualities that we say that we want to really stand in. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that's such a good point because Telling yourself that you can't do or have that for any number of reasons or that you shouldn't want it doesn't actually make the desire go away. <laughs> no, it doesn't. Like it makes you feel like shit, but it, you know what I mean? Like it doesn't, yeah, that like you can, I mean, maybe you can deny it for a long time, but like that seed of sort of resentment and like unexplored desire, unallowed desire, it's going to come out in some way. Yeah. And it usually, you know, it comes out in, in a way, a a lot of times in ways that are destructive. Yeah. Right. So it's going back to what we're talking about. You know, there's a lot of parts of ourselves that we tend to deny. We tend to shut down and however it needs to still be expressed. So, um, you know, I think in our society, one of the things that we suppress are, 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 are us as sexual beings, So we see it coming out like in just ways that are not healthy and toxic, right? Um, So I think it's about embracing all of that we are. So going back to to once again, wholeness. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. No, I love that as a reoccurring theme here. So one of the other topics that you had mentioned um, off air that you wanted to to discuss and that I would love to hear your thoughts about is your experience being a woman of color in the spiritual industry and the question of how we reconcile these ideas of light and love with justice. Because similarly to what we were saying about spirituality, ambition, how they coexist, spirituality and ambition, I feel like there's potentially a a dichotomy that's seen or a conflict that's seen here. And I, I loved that you mentioned that that was something you wanted to talk about and 
would love to hear it. Yeah, I think uh, that's, you know, that's a really big topic. Yeah, and, uh, yeah, okay. of course. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and what I think is that, you know, in the spiritual world, there's a lot of people who just want, they, they're, they have these things that they believe in. They believe, you know, it's a law of attraction. Um, and that means just light and love. And we're not supposed to look or talk about all of these things. Yet there are children who are, who are hungry in America, right? Even in America, I'm not even going to talk about other countries. And so I think that light and love all, you know, they, they, it does coexist with justice because love is also having, so there's one side of love that's, you know, the touchy feely love. And then there's another side of love that can be having boundaries. Um, so there's two sides of that. So in order for us to truly love, we have to, I believe, uplift other people. I think in order to truly love, we have to, you know, look at the areas where there are injustices, you know, with women's rights, with rights of LGBTQ, I, with African-American rights, um, so many, so Muslims. And so I feel like, a lot of times this industry only wants to look at let's just be positive. Yeah. Let's um, just, you know, if we're not positive, we're not, you know, we're, we're attracting what we don't want. So it's a, it's a law of attraction. And it's really funny because I saw that um, someone posted online. She said, maybe it's a law of attraction or maybe it's a law of attraction why you manifested this, or maybe it's white supremacy. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God, that's so good. Um, uh, And and I think it's Carmen Spaniola. She posted that actually. And so I, I laughed so hard, but that is true, right? That is so true. And <laughs> there's, you know, there's a can of worms opening with that. No, I mean, but, and of course, like, this is a huge topic. I know when I read, when I read that that was something you wanted to talk about, I'm like, this could be like a, a 20 episode podcast series, right? About one topic um, <laughs> that I'm certainly not the one that's <laughs> to, to talk about that. But just even touching on it, because I think, yeah, I mean, you mentioned law of attraction. I do think that there is, and I don't even think it's a misconception. I think that there is a percentage of, you know, the spiritual community, spirituality industry, however you want to phrase that, that is invested in sort of the light, fluffy, keep everything positive, let's all just feel good side of things. And almost from like a moral superiority, right? Like I'm above that, right? When mm, like what you're talking about to me, that seems like spirituality that I can get behind that it's like love as action and like, like light working toward justice, like that I don't think that they are contradictory at all. They're not. And you know what? And those same people who, who, you know, are in that category, they post Martin Luther King quotes, but guess what? They don't post the whole quote. You know, you know, but guess what? He was, he was a beacon for activism. He was a beacon for justice. And he understood that light and love also meant justice. It also meant activism. It also meant using our voice. So for me, I, be, you know, I, I believe that 
in order to do soul work, you it part of the soul work is actually uplifting all of humanity. So it, it is looking at, okay, there are people who don't have the same privileges that even I have in this country. And I'm not going to say, oh, well, you manifested that. Like, I am so not behind that at all. And I feel it's, um, it's you know, elitist to, to, to say that. But also it's, it's really disconnected. I think it's because we've, you know, it's, it's part of disconnection. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love this. I mean, again, I feel like we could talk about this forever and ever, <laughs> but just even like opening that up as like so much of, of the brilliance of what you've shared, not just on this topic, but on everything else is like a perspective switch, right? It's like, okay, well, what if spirituality can be more of an action, right? And what if it can be also messier? Like, I think there's also in terms of, you know, myths, uh, this idea that your spiritual practice, it's this very, I don't know, light and pretty and sparkling. And maybe it is that sometimes, but that like any other part of our lives, it can be messy. It's like, I think why so many folks, myself included in the past, have, you know, tried and stopped meditation, you know, 11 million times because I have this vision of what it's supposed to look like. And it's such a night, like sometimes it's messy and it's awful and it's only two minutes and my mind's wandering the whole time. And that's good too. Yeah. I mean, I think it's like all, probably 99% of the time. Oh my God, like totally. That. Yeah. And, and, and it's, but it's, it's like letting, I don't know, this realm of spirituality, taking it out of this like very woo woo, like soft, pretty, like it can, be, it's like, there's a place for it in our messy real lives. Yeah. And I think the pretty is being authentic. Mm-hmm. That's what pretty is, you know, really, truly being authentic. And And when we're not in our authenticity, we're actually just uplifting some kind of, you know, once again, an image, a facade. And we're actually buying into the ideals and the, you know, that we say that we're we're not buying into. Um, So I feel that, you know, white supremacy and patriarchy, they're, you know, brothers and sisters, right? They're they're brothers. So um, when we in order for us to truly heal, like we have to look at all of it, like the light and the dark, we have to be okay with all of it. And, um, and I mean, I think that's, that's the only path to healing, honestly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so too. Is there any element of your work that we haven't talked about that you would love to go into? Oh, there's, I mean, there's so much, I feel like, um, you know, I, I, I just think that in terms of the work, I would say, I think that soul work is activism. That's, that's what I would say. It is activism. And when, and I think any work that we can, that we do, we can be activists as well as artists in our, in our lives. I think they can all coexist. So it's it's just about the the notion that all of these things are not they're not separate they can actually coexist and and be harmonious live harmoniously mm-hmm. uh, so it's not about denying one side of ourselves uh, in order to once again fit into some kind of ideal that we have in our minds so I guess that's I guess that's to like sum sum up sum it up mm-hmm. in terms of 
that, what we were just talking about. Yeah. So before we start to wrap up, um, the last thing, the last thing that I would love to ask you, and this is, I guess, sort of getting away from, from your work, although I don't know what your answer is going to be. So potentially it is related to that. Um, I'd love to hear about whether it was a positive event, a negative, hard, anything, an event in your life that stands out really as a turning point for you? Like, is there something that you look back on to be like, ooh, that shifted some things that really was like a big catalyst or I don't know, I guess I don't even have to overexplain it. I think you know what I mean. Oh my gosh, there's so many. I'm like, <laughs> to pick one. Um, I would say, a, you know, a turning point in my life, I think uh, definitely was, you know, my dad's passing, but a year after my dad passed, I was um, involved in a case of getting pulled over by the cops of of racial profiling with my husband, where we almost passed away. Oh, my God. Yeah. So uh, it was in Los Angeles. We were driving down the 405 and pretty much we got pulled over. They thought we were some other people. And there were at least a dozen guns pointed at our backs, helicopters flying above. And I think that in that moment, I remember just looking up and being like, if I make it out of this alive, I'm going to use all of my gifts. That's, that's, that was the promise I made in this moment. And I spent so much time just, you know, I, I felt so much shame around that as well. Um, like, like it was somehow my fault. Like, how did this thing happen? You know, if, um, you know, we go back to like the law of, like, how did you attract this? (laughs) However, I, I realized that, that, that happening really made me want to really stand even more in activism in my work. It really made me want to even go deeper into shadow work and um, so that we can reclaim our light. It also made me really explore forgiveness because I had to go through a big forgiveness process with these, these cops. Like I was pushed, I was like on my knees, I got pushed to the ground. And I, I remember thinking like, well, what if I was pregnant at the time? And here I am getting shoved on the ground. Um, and it, it, you know, was a case of mistaken identity. So uh, really a case of racial profiling, right? So to me, I think that was a catalyst in terms of, of bringing all of these separate things that I was, um, that I knew that were part of what I wanted to do. And it it came together. Mm -hmm. And to, I mean, essentially, I mean, that's, that's a a horrifying story, but to stand for a, like a, a kind of spirituality that isn't based in you. I mean, what you said about law and attract, you didn't do anything to attract that situation. Exactly. That and being, and it's again, the both and right. That, you know, you can be an example of being a very spiritually connected, divine connected person that doesn't, you know, make, have a belief system that makes people feel shamed when thing ha- when something happens to them that literally is outside of their control. That's like systemically bigger than them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Whew, that's a powerful story. <laughs> I guess mm-hmm. that's an interesting way to start to wrap up. Um, <laughs> The way that we end these are with a series of 
sort of rapid fire quick questions. Um, if you are down to answer seven questions that uh, the Patreon community, the folks who fund the podcast, um, want me to ask all eight guests this season. Yay, I'm excited. This first one is going to be, you couldn't find more of a topic switch from what we were just talking about to from racial profiling filing to the question I'm about to ask you. Like, this is could not be any more different. Um, if you could have a hot fling with one fictional character, who would you choose? Fictional character? So like from a book or like a TV show, like not the actor, but the character. Mm, oh my gosh. Mm. Oh my gosh. I'm going to have to come back to that one. Okay. Okay. <laughs> this is my favorite question of all time, by the way. So I love it. Um, okay. Next question. What's something that you learned this year that changed the way you think about yourself or the world? Something I learned this year that changed the way I think about myself or the world. I think the thing that I learned this year is motherhood is all things. Motherhood is all things. And I just bow down to my mother, every mother, every woman. Um, and it's beautiful. It's messy. And that's, and it's okay. Mm-hmm. What's something, well, I guess the, motherhood probably, but what's something that didn't go like you expected this year? Something that didn't go as I expected Oh, definitely the the whole moving process. Like it took so much longer than than I than I than I expected. Like it just took many many months, and um, it wasn't as breezy as I thought it would be. It's you know it's still actually an ongoing process. Like we're still in the process of settling in. Um, yeah. So uh, and you know I've I've had to really focus a lot more this year than I even expected on, on being a mom. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Tell me about a time when you feel like you really pushed your limits in a good way. Like you did more than you thought was possible and really impressed yourself. Ooh, I I would say a a couple of years back, I think a year before I, I actually sat down and I wrote a script Like I wrote a script and I trusted myself um, during that process. I didn't follow like anyone's formulas. So I sat down and I, and it wasn't for any kind of goal. Like, Oh, I want to, you know, it's even get produced or anything. It was just for the desire. That's what my soul wanted to express at the time. And I just, allowed it to express it and it came out through the script. So that's something I'm, I'm really proud of. And, you know, it was, it was challenging, but it was, you know, it, it was just allowing my soul to express in that during those months that I was writing. Mm-hmm. What's something that you plan to do less of in 2018? Oh, less of, I think it goes back actually my word for 2018 um, it came to me like a week ago is sovereign. And, um, so that's I guess, such a good choice. Yeah. That it just popped into me, my, my mind, my heart, I should say. And so I guess sovereign is really, um, I guess it's really looking to the right or to the left or behind me as to what I should be doing next. So really it's, it's, it's about trusting. It's about standing in my own power. So I guess it's, it's less 
hey, what do you think about that asking? And I, sure. and I tend not to do that a lot, but you know, I think um, it's less, less doing, doing that even less. Yeah. And less looking at what other people are doing is validation for what you're doing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the next question is about books, which two to three books, any type of book, any genre, would you say have either had the biggest impact on you or that you recommend or reread most often? I'm still in the process of reading it, but the course, <laughs> the course of miracles, I mm-hmm. think it's, it's amazing. Um, I think what other books, I, I mean, I love, I love, I love fiction books. I love nonfiction. Um, I love anything Elizabeth Gilbert has written. I love, um, I love feminism. Um, so I would say bell hooks and, um, Audre Lorde, uh, Poetry, Nayira Wahid. I hope I'm saying her name correctly. Oh my gosh, she's incredible. Uh, she's incredible. So I love reading poetry. Um, I, I have like a library <laughs> of books, but um, that I, those, I have her book Salt on my desk right now. Yeah, mm-hmm. I love um, I love poetry. Um, I love writing poetry. I love reading poetry. So I have a couple of her books as well. Such good recommendations. So the last question, if you could leave our community, the listeners with one call to action, what would it be? Maybe a question to ask themselves or a small action to take? I would say, how will you rise in the coming year? Hmm. How are you being called to rise? That's such a good question. It's beautiful. Um, What's the best place for people to find you and say hi online? Do you maybe have a favorite way to connect with new folks? Yes, they can find me on my website, Therese Couture. I'm sure you're, you'll have the link, um, T-H-E-R-E-S-E-C-A-T-O-R.com. And I realized I didn't answer your first question. <laughs> oh, <story>. yes. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, so that's where they can connect with me. I'm on Instagram and Facebook, too. Um, yeah. Awesome. Well, hey, I mean, you will come up with an answer at some point where you're reading a book and you're like, this is a fictional character I would want to have a hot fling with. And then you email me and we will discuss it. Um, Awesome. I will put links to all of that in the show notes. Uh, This was incredible. Thank you so much for your honesty and story sharing and just all your perspectives. Oh, thank you so much, Nicole. I love what you do. And you know, you're just being such a great service. Thank you for just I didn't know how this was going to go. And uh, thank you so much. And that's our show for today. Thanks so much for listening and for being part of the Real Talk Radio family. I absolutely couldn't do this without you. And as I said way back at the top of the episode, this is now a 100% listener-funded show. The show is made possible by awesome people like Emily. Hi, Emily. Hey, Nicole. How are you doing? I am excited to ask you some random rapid-fire questions. Awesome. Are you ready? I think so. <laughs> You're like, I don't know, maybe. Um, <laughs> what are you totally obsessed with right now? Oh, boy. Okay. So I thought that you might ask this because I've heard you ask. It's my favorite people. question. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and so I've been mulling it over and trying to come up with something other than like whatever I'm binge watching lately. <laughs> Although I will take and- that too. Listen, what are you binge watching? <laughs> Well, I'm rewatching The Office, and I also just finally started This Is Us. Do you cry every single episode? Um, pretty much. Yeah. I had to. I, yep. I honestly, it's so good. I had to stop watching it. I still haven't watched the season finale from season one because it got to the point where I'm like, it's too much feelings. I can't right now with all these feelings. It's crazy. I feel like they're specifically trying to manipulate our feelings. I mean, obviously, but 
the different cliffhangers at the end of every episode and I don't know it just it's always so much (laughs) yeah I know I had to put it down for a while I was like it's too good and I can't it's too much feelings I need something really light I started I recently started watching the show Superstore have you seen that I haven't do you like that one oh my god it's if you want something that's light and fun I mean obviously you just mentioned the office I think I'm like obsessed I started watching it like three days ago and I'm already like deep into season two it's so good Oh, funny. See, I, I feel like that's one of those shows where it could be really funny, but the commercials, I don't know, something about it always puts me off. So may, maybe I'll try it. Now yeah, that, that I, I loved it. I had never it. seen any commercials. Um, my my friend Jamie was like, no, no, you need to watch this. I was like, all right, I'll give it a shot. And uh, yeah, she was correct. <laughs> it's fantastic. Um, But I totally interrupted you, your non-binge watching obsession that you were going to share. Oh, so I was going to say... um. Now that I've been thinking about this, trying to prep for this conversation, I'm obsessed with the idea of like finding something to be obsessed with, Mm. (laughs) like realizing that I don't have anything that, you know, I love to research or, you know, when the conversation is in a lull that I can like drop some weird trivia on like, I don't know, 19th century England or uh, (laughs) like... Buttons, or I—I I don't know. I don't know why those are the ideas that I just came up with. Well, I think those. Are, I think you should. I think you should research both 19th century England and buttons, and potentially the Venn diagram between 19th century English buttons. That sounds excellent. <laughs> this is my calling. Um, what's one place in your hometown that you'd really recommend that people check out if they ever travel there? Ooh, okay. Let's like a see. restaurant, coffee um, shop, park, anything that you really love. Well, I live in Columbus, Ohio, and something that I really love here is the High Banks Metro Park. It's maybe 15, 20 minutes north of downtown, and I've gone probably half a dozen to a dozen times, and I've never um, felt like I've explored all of it. It's just really lovely trails. Um, But then my hometown of Middlebury, Vermont... Um, well, I haven't been back in two years, so let's see. Uh, I guess just going down to the Marble Works, which is across the river on this fun pedestrian footbridge, um, is always a fun place to explore for me. Mm, I love it. This is such a fun question. It was one of the questions that was suggested. I don't remember who suggested it, but someone in our Patreon community suggested it for one of the end of episode questions, you know, to ask guests. And obviously there's too many good questions. I can't ask them all. And this one I thought, okay, let me use this one here because then, you know, you get suggestions for, hey, if I'm ever in this city or this city, it's awesome. Um, What's one thing that you have had to let go of or stop doing this year in order to move forward? Oh, wow. Hmm. Um, I have had to let go of being afraid to talk to people. <laughs> um, I am a social person once I get going, but I can be shy when I first meet somebody. And part of that, I think, is rooted in the fact that I have a sort of like anxiety-based stutter that comes out and makes it difficult for me to talk when I'm anxious, which meeting people is a great time for that to flare up. Um, And that's held me back in the past, but I'm trying to grow my community. And I also started a little podcast with a friend. And so having to like talk into a microphone, much like we are right now, 
used to be a thing that would really um, like hit the brakes for me and really like get my uh, blood pressure through the roof. But um, working with a therapist and just putting myself out there more and more has helped me figure out how to uh, push through the discomfort and be okay with it if I have awkward pauses. Mm, that's incredible. I love hearing you know, big and small ways that people are pushing themselves to be uncomfortable in order to grow. And that's such a good example. I love that. Thank you. What's one decision in your past that had you chosen differently, you feel like would have led you down an entirely different path in your life? Oh, wow. These are crazy to think about. (laughs) (laughs) I know, right? No pressure. Just review your entire life and tell me what the big turning point was. (laughs) Um, something that I think about is when I went to study abroad during college, um, there was, so first of all, that spring when I was having to decide where I was going to go, that was when I had just met, um, a boyfriend I was very excited about who, uh, spoiler alert, I just celebrated my 10th anniversary with, and he's now my husband. (laughs) Um, so deciding where to go study abroad meant that wherever I went, I would have to be away from him. So I was really reluctant and bitter, even though I'd been looking forward to this adventure for a really long time. And uh, there was this one program in Prague that sounded really amazing, but it was a lot um, of focus around art. And I felt really intimidated by that. So instead of doing that and going to like a very foreign seeming place, I sort of was like, uh, let's go to an English speaking country that feels easier. (laughs) And I went to Edinburgh, Scotland, which was beautiful, but ended up being a really bad fit for me. And I spent that semester like extra miserable. (laughs) Um, you know, on top of being away from my new love, just being in like a place that wasn't quite the right fit for me. So I definitely wonder about that sometimes if I had gone to a place that had challenged me more and been more in like in line with my interests, if that would have been a more positive experience for me. Mm-hmm. The last of the rapid fire questions, what's one thing that you are lately wishing that people were more open and honest about? Hmm. I mean, money always fascinates me, and I love that we share that interest. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Whenever you go into that in your episodes, I always find it so fascinating. Um, And I talk about it every now and then with friends, but it makes things weird because not everybody is as open and interested in it as I am. So, Yeah, more money talk. Just hoping that changes. Yeah, I love it. So you're a member of our Patreon support squad, which means that you're one of the people that listeners can thank for making the podcast possible since you make a small and powerful reoccurring pledge that helps to fund the costs of producing the show each each season. And I would love for you to share why you decided to do that. Speaking of money, why did you decide to help fund the show? (laughs) Um, I really love the idea of voting with our dollars. And I think that you probably wrote something along those lines in whatever I read that was, you know, your effort to recruit supporters. Um, and it really resonated with me. Um, cause I absolutely want to support, uh, a creator of content that I absolutely love. You know, I'm always so excited when a new season drops, it always feels worth, you know, the eight bucks that I chip in. Um, 
And when you started sending your notes of grit and grace to newsletter subscribers or uh, to your Patreon supporters, um, it just felt extra worth it because that's like one of my favorite emails that I get hands down. Uh, it, it almost feels like you're like my favorite horoscope um, writer, you know, like astrologist or something. Like I feel like we're always in sync with what we're <laughs> thinking about and you know, the rare times we aren't, I'm like, Oh, I should be thinking about that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's so kind and flattering and lovely. I really appreciate it. I also appreciate you being brave and joining me for this and to everyone listening. If you love the podcast, if you want to help keep it going, if you want over 40 hours of bonus content, plus lots of other fun opportunities and extras like the weekly emails, just go to patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette to make your pledge of $8 or more for each eight episode season. I can't tell you how much your support means to me, and it'll be so much fun to get to know you better after you've joined our community. So until next time, here's a big virtual hug and a reminder that we're all just doing the best we can, and no matter what, we're in this together. <laughs>